take nothing else away my family. This kind listen to me. I want you to remember this. When I'm hard to love, love me harder. This is Palm Sunday. It's Passover time. It's the time when Jews throughout the empire went back to the time of Jesus. And Jews throughout the empire from North America, from North Africa, from Rome, from Athens, from Ephesus, they all came to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. The temple was a place to hear the New Testament. The temple was, was places of meeting with families, of marketplace, but it's also a house of prayer. It's a house of prayer for all nations. But when Jews come at Passover time, they're also celebrating the Feast of Freedom. So you can imagine how perhaps how you would have felt on the one hand they're celebrating freedom, right? They're released from slavery and slavery of Exodus. Uh, and yet on the other hand, recognizing that the city, Jerusalem, where they're coming to celebrate freedom from slavery, and yet coming to a place that is under the domination. So when the Jews enter Jerusalem to celebrate this feast of freedom, Pilate brings his troops to Jerusalem to show them that Roman rule still is there, that um, the Romans are in charge, that the Jews are under Roman domination and Roman rule. So when Jesus enters Jerusalem on Passover time, we might think of this as a victory parade, uh, in a sense, because uh, that might have been a daring move. Um, since Pilate had brought all of the troops, you know, think of military and horses and, and dust and drums and, and, you know, a military guard. And just imagine all of the, this activity around, you know, Pilate making sure that Hebrews knew Romans ruled. But it, Jesus entering uh, Jerusalem at Passover time is, in a way, a victory parade. But, um, with a victory that's kind of guaranteed, but it's not been accomplished. Um, it's not been, you know, come to fruition. It's not come to manifest form. Um, but instead of a victory of maybe the way the Romans would think with dead bodies and terrorism and, you know, imperialism, um, instead it's more of a victory of what the cross means um, and then the resurrection, right, which hasn't happened yet. So we think about the cross as horizontal and vertical. Horizontal being, we might imagine, and you know, we thought in allegory as you know, horizontal being fully human, right? And the vertical being fully divine, that nature that we each are wholly, fully human and fully divine. Keep in mind also that Christian Testament, what used to be called the New Testament, but we refer to it as the Christian Bible, Christian Testament, is most of it is a rewrite of Hebrew Testament, what used to be called the Old Testament. We don't call it that anymore. It's the Hebrew Bible or Hebrew Testament. The prophet Zechariah talks about a king that's coming and the son of David entering Jerusalem on a donkey or a coat. Uh, and so Jesus arranges on a donkey to ride into Jerusalem. When he enters the city, when he enters Jerusalem, he enters it on one hand as the son of David, which is a royal figure, which is a political figure, a political statement. And on the other hand, he enters as a humble figure um, because Jesus is not really concerned about political power. And I 
for us is massive. I'm worried that Jesus would be more concerned about us going to court today, serving the leadership, not getting any court authority, not any kind of domination over anything, but where the servant leaders are called to live, where leaders are servants of the people. And you can see that kind of throughout the Gospels in different voices. What we've had a tendency to do over the centuries is to kind of lose all of these first and uh, I've got one story about Jesus entrance into Jerusalem. And we've, um, we've kind of been done that with the resurrection as well. You have this idea that there's these sudden explosions of Jesus, and there aren't. Um, what we've done when we do that is we've taken pieces from different gospels and smushed them together. And as soon as we just go, you have to recognize that they are full of very different stories. Um, and you should pay close attention to those different stories. Because each story has different details, right? So we take differences like, so there's the, you know, when Jesus enters, there's the crowds. Well, who is the crowd? You know, is the crowd hearing Jesus? Um, like, is that like a really big crowd? People who don't even know Jesus? Um, or is it just his own followers? Or just people, you know, his disciples? Has Jesus come as a defendant of the cause of Zechariah? Or for some other reason? And or are we just left to fill in the prophecy on our own? Which is part of actually making Jesus' message convenient. So when it get to like with the parables, if we read a parable, think we got it, we didn't. The beauty and the, the power in the parables is to remain embedded in the good listening. And so when it comes to the Bible, particularly to the to the narrative of Holy Week, I would really encourage you and invite you to go back and listen to each gospel. Go back and read the story, the Holy Week story, including the, the death and resurrection, um, read the two Gospels of Mark, read the Gospel of Matthew, of Luke, of John, because they each have very different, separate stories to it. When we really have this full panoply of these stories, when we read all of them and put them next to each other, then we can read in our own concerns. Then we can really read in our own questions. And what does this mean? And rather than maybe just bringing the stories along, because that's what it's been for hundreds of centuries, we can start to really appreciate the power of the text. We can use our historical imagination. We can picture Jesus and his followers, not just white men, but they would have been women, they would have been children, they would have been other followers that maybe had never, never, they had never seen Jesus or heard Jesus. People that he knew in Bethany. Right? People that he met on the road to Jerusalem, people that he met just entering the city, the crowd that might have already been there, um, or maybe just his disciples. We don't know. That's the beauty of going back and reading the differences in each gospel and really getting how you know each writer saw this event. But as he's entering, we hear, and we don't know who's calling out, but some are calling out Hosanna, which means send him out. And that's translated. But some are calling out Hosanna. Some are calling out the son of David. And they're calling out the son of David who has more of a political concern. Because would it be in direct violation of Roman rule to call someone else the son of David, like a king, would have gone against the Roman emperor? If you think about the mountains that were there, we know Pilate, the Roman governor, comes in the city at the Passover time, and he's there representing Roman strength and Roman domination and Hey, we're here, don't don't be messing around, don't make trouble. And then there's also the character Caiaphas, who's the high priest. 
and he's there to, um, you know, hopefully keep peace in Jerusalem. So is he kind of thinking that they're just for their savior has come for us? Is he kind of thinking revolution is about to occur? Is he kind of thinking that God is all God's divine glory will come to the city, get there in the Romans, and create peace on earth? Frankly, if I were Pilate, the Roman governor, or if I were Caiaphas, a Jewish high priest, I would be very concerned about what the crowd is thinking. I would be. And I'm not sure, because we know, you know, we don't know a lot about who's this uh, itinerant behind that's been wandering around Galilee for, you know, a few years and supposedly doing healings and teaching people and, um, you know, sort of turning people's thinking, you know, inside out in its own way. So that means it's our job to put ourselves in the position of the crowd where we are calling out, save, you know, save now. And we're crying out, you know, our own version of save. I don't know about you, but I certainly at times, you know, in the last several years where I want to cry out for someone, just save me, save me, you know, save us. And am I thinking about a revolution, you know, a political revolution? Am I, I, when I say political revolution, I don't mean politics like Democratic Republican. I mean political in terms of people, right? Political, because that's what political means, is of the people. Uh, or am I, you know, it's, it's kind of like an internal or an external revolution, or am I thinking about a revolution of love? Am I thinking about a revolution of servant leadership? Because each of us is a servant leader. And the reality is, is that both revolutions are messy. They're just messy in different ways. And yes, a revolution of love is messy. Because love is something we have to learn. It's not just this cognitive, you know, principle. It's one of the twelve habits. It's not just this, you know, um, you know, this magnetic force that makes things harmonize. It's it's really that's like the cognitive understanding of the principle. Really, love is a principle that is an action, an activity, and what's behind what makes it that is really desire. Charles Fillmore, uh, he encourages writings, very often we can replace the word love with desire. And I don't mean desire in the Buddhist sense of uh, desire of delightful suffering, but rather desire and what am I longing for? What am I yearning for? So if this Jesus entry into Jerusalem is, uh, is this revolution of servant leadership, if it's a revolution of love, then I'm going to come back to when I'm hard to love, harder, because again, love is something that we have to learn and make progress with, and it's not just the enthusiasm, but rather it's a skill, and it requires forbearance and generosity and imagination and a lot of things to further the cause. We practice with each other, right? That's why I say when I'm hard to love, love me harder. For me, that's the message behind this, you know, entering into Jerusalem. So if you think back, to save now, saving from what? So in the, at the time of Jesus, the thought would have been to save us from Roman domination, from Roman taxation, Roman oppression, you know, from the Romans trampling our holy city and our holy temple. Today, that's not what we're thinking. Today, I'm thinking, you know, saving from disease, from political violence, save us from poverty, 
despair and feel content that the user has to save them, you know, until they suffer. And so, what are we really calling out to save? Right? Save, save means save us from what? And what sort of saving am I willing to step into? This is commonly the case in the master prophets of God that they can get to come and pray infamously and humbly and unironically. And, and there's, you know, people there in crowds and, and um, shouting Hosanna and all the things. And what do you expect when you have to save? Like, what do we expect will happen? Well, we know how the story ends because we know it's in the Greek and it's the bottom of the text. But what do you, what do you expect when the parade is over? about crucifixion and resurrection, and then what? And then what? Uh, this triumphal entry scene might make us think about, well, you know, there, there's some, you know, things that have been stirred up and, and, and sort of this, you know, revolution, and by revolution, it doesn't mean any violence or uh, people are harmed or hurt, but revolution is uh, turning inside out, right? And we've had these kind of revolutions, we've had times where things are turned inside out, where you know, moving through really unpredictable changes. And, you know, we've been through a pandemic. Maybe had to sell a building and start a new ministry. Maybe there's a new board. Maybe, you know, we elected a new governor, a senator, a president, right? We, new systems are put in place. So what's the, the change and what's the, the, the scene of this change that's going on so quickly? Because that's what this would have been when Jesus walks in, you know, comes into Jerusalem. would have been the crowds going on and, Systems of consciousness clashing, right? The Roman ruling and the servant leadership breaking culture. So, what happens in a week when things change so quickly? And maybe it's not a week, maybe it's a month, but when things change so quickly, can we stay with what is new? Can we, um, or do we want more changes again, something different? Or what about when the changes don't seem to be working? So what do we do with our expectations? What do we do following the election? What do we do following the ministerialization? Following the parade? Where are we going to stay? Right? Think about the end of a parade or some kind of picnic. Are we just cleaning up garbage that's left over? Or are we really ready to engage something new? No matter how uncomfortable. That's a revolution as well. Being willing to engage something new that I may not be able to see the outcome. Most likely I can, but am I still willing to engage in the moment from a consciousness of love and compassion and wisdom? And that's the spiritual, our spiritual strength. Learn hard to love, loving harder. That spiritual strength is our capacity to stand undaunted in the midst of shifting circumstances, challenging and stealing times. And stay the course. Act courageously and stay the course. Even when I feel frail, even when I feel like, oh, I don't know, I'm going to quit. 
You just need to change. You just need to let's see it again. Hey, you need to change it because that's not working. And I have this that kind of that kind of um, activity going on often in my life. Do you realize how that works? And so if you think about the time of Jesus and Jesus walking on his donkey coming into Jerusalem, I wonder if he was saying, I'm done. There's something I need to go on. There's something I must need to turn inside out. So he told her, what, what happens? What do people do? They go home. But as we take that, I go look and read all four Gospels and how different they are about this story, this week, this holy week. I can then put that into my own life and just kind of navigate through it and see what, what comes up for me. See the places where I can go when I want to go or be a part of. Because this is a collective thing. We don't do it alone. We don't do this revolution of love alone at all. It's for a collective good. So I think the work of love is to go beyond what we see in the front that's challenging. You know, your challenging behavior, my challenging behavior, another's challenging behavior, and try to ask the question of kind of where it comes from. And know that when you are hard to love, I'm going to love you back. Which requires me, right, to, to do me harder. Not to love you harder in like impossible and gross competition, but for me to do my work around love, to do my work of spiritual strength, again, which is the capacity to stand in the midst of shifting circumstances, which was, which is holy week, everything in the universe is shifting circumstances and challenging and scary times. And so our spiritual strength is to say, Keeping in mind, after the parade, what's left? Is there things to clean up? Am I ready to engage? Am I ready to say, you're hard to love, and I'm going to love you harder? Am I ready to say to you, and I'm hard to love, love me harder? Right? So let's take that idea into meditation, because we move, we, we go 